Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And so I believe last time I mentioned that I had some corrections to take care of, so I might as well get those out of the way now. And the first one is more of an apology than a correction. Last week, the volume levels were all over the place. And if I wasn't a skeptic, I might even be tempted to suggest that I may have jinxed myself. You might remember relatively recently on the show, I was saying how, to my relief, I thought I finally found, that was a lot of unplanned alliteration, the perfect audio settings for the show where I was no longer getting those annoying electronic glitches, etc., the pops and whatnot. Well, I was in the middle of recording the last episode when all of a sudden... Uh, the computer reset the input volume in my Mac preferences to it put it all the way up to the max. And uh, I looked it up, and apparently it's not just me going crazy. That's uh, actually a thing. And it's embarrassing to admit, but even after doing this podcast for almost a decade now, man, um, I st- and plus singing in a band, uh, you know, since I was a teenager, I still don't know how to normalize audio. So let's say you have multiple tracks or multiple segments, maybe some are louder than others on the same track, how to take all that and bring it down to the same volume level. Um, So it's not jarring to the listener where, you know, at one point you're blowing someone's eardrums out and then the next, you know, maybe it sounds more tolerable or maybe sounds too soft or whatever. I think GarageBand does it to a certain extent just through the export process, but it's usually not enough if there's drastic differences in volume. So my own kind of Mickey Mouse fix, and it's probably a longer and more time-consuming method, uh, I'm sure somehow there's got to be a way in the settings to you know take care of that. But there's an automation line that appears along each track, and you can add points to it, and you can raise the points or lower the points to control the volume. So after the volume reset itself, you know, when I was done recording, I had to go back and try to, you know, manually raise and lower the volume and try to even it out to some degree. So apologies if you were listening to the last uh, episode, especially with headphones, and you know it sounded like you're I was blowing your eardrums out at some point, and then other points it might may have sounded too soft or whatever. Uh, hopefully that doesn't happen again. And to be honest, at some point I might try to jump from GarageBand to Adobe's Audition. I pay almost 60 bucks a month for Adobe's Creative Suite, which Audition is a part of. And I've been wondering if maybe, you know, maybe it's not as glitchy as GarageBand. Um, a podcaster can hope. I'll probably uh, try that out in the near future. But enough about the tech stuff. I know a lot of you probably find that boring. I don't blame you. Uh, so what other corrections were there? And this this next one is what I would have referred to in the old days of the podcast as a neurotic self-correction. Probably something really trivial that I don't need to address, but I like to correct even the small things. So uh, a couple of episodes ago, I did a kind of review of the movie uh, Don't Look Up, which I really liked. And I described Timothy Chalamet's character as wearing a leather jacket. 
but it was more of like an army jacket. Yes, I'm going to correct that. It was like a, um, yeah, like a army green kind of cloth jacket or whatever. And this is just a quick observation, but I've seen Timothy Chalamet in a number of interviews and uh, even partaking in like an actor's roundtable once. And he just seems like a really nice dude. I'm always impressed when I uh, hear him talk or see him in interviews. Um, a surprisingly nice guy. I think when I first saw him, you know, books and their covers and all that, I thought he, he probably would have been like this arrogant young guy. Um, but just really humble, really nice guy, uh, almost to the point where you're like, is this for real? It probably is. I'm just being cynical. Uh, I hope it's for real because uh, seems like a great guy. Didn't plan on dedicating that much of the show to Timothy Chalamet or Timothy. Uh, but anyway, uh, th now this is another probably neurotic self-correction that I probably didn't have to make. Um, and so a couple of episodes back, I think I referred to anti-memetic as being a literary term, which is true. It is a term that's used in uh, the critique and analysis of art and literature, but it's also sometimes, or uh, I don't know how often, often enough, it's also used in philosophy. It's used as a, a philosophical term. Uh, and I almost said literary and philosophical term uh, when I was recording that episode, but didn't. So now I'm correcting myself. Okay. And so this next correction is probably the biggest or most important. And I probably shouldn't be too hard on myself. It's probably more of a clarification. I just wasn't privy to this piece of additional information at the time. So I had been talking about how Joe Rogan had a guest on. Uh, I didn't name the guest at the time, but it was a guy named Josh Zepps, who I think he's a journalist of sorts. And just so I don't have to issue yet another correction next time around, I quickly pulled up his Wikipedia page and it has his occupation or occupations plural listed as actor, media personality, political satirist, and TV show host. Let's see, Zepps has previously hosted Weekend Breakfast on ABC News. He was a founding host for HuffPost Live, and his work has included satirical writing and presenting for Australian radio, as well as the hosting of Brink, an American TV series. He also hosts the podcast Point of Inquiry for the Center for Inquiry, and that makes me think of uh, someone who I really like but haven't thought of in a long time, Eddie Tabash, who I think is a uh, board member for the or on the uh, he's on the bo a board member on the board. That would make sense uh, for the Center of Inquiry. And yeah, if you're not familiar, Eddie Tabash is an atheist activist and lawyer. And back when I was, you know, constantly binging atheist content, I would watch his debates and uh, I, I always liked him. But back to Josh Zepps and Joe Rogan. So Zepps appeared on his show. And as I discuss in that episode where I said something that I now think requires a correction or follow-up, the two kind of got into a back and forth or butted heads a little on the subject of myocarditis as it relates to COVID, uh, with Josh Zepps claiming or suggesting that young males, uh, you know, young men and boys, are more likely to develop myocarditis as a symptom of COVID itself, as opposed to a side effect of one of the COVID vaccines. 
Whereas Joe Rogan tended to believe that the opposite was true, that young males were more likely to experience myocarditis as a vaccine side effect as opposed to, you know, developing it as a symptom of COVID itself. And in case I didn't already mention it, and I imagine most of you probably already know, but myocarditis is just kind of a fancy medical term for a certain kind of inflammation of the muscle tissue of the heart. And um, this isn't conspiracy theory stuff. It's pretty much known and accepted at this point that a small percentage of young males do experience myocarditis or seem to uh, experience, experience it as a vaccine side effect. But complicating matters, as I've already touched on a couple of times, it's also experienced as a COVID symptom. In fact, I think the consensus still is that you're much more likely to experience myocarditis as a uh, symptom of COVID as opposed to a vaccine side effect. But the controversy or point of contention is, you know, does that hold true for this specific seemingly more vulnerable group, young males. And so, once again, this is what Rogan and Zepp sounds like, a weird uh, traveling comedy uh, team, but uh, this is what Rogan, cracking myself up, this is what Rogan and Zepps were butting heads over. And so, as he is wont to do, uh, Joe, you know, turned to young Jamie and asked him to uh, find the information. And so uh, Jamie found, uh, um, you know, an article or some stats online. And uh, I don't know if Zepps uh, provided Jamie with the specific, you know, site or article or if Jamie found it on his own. But the article or data seemed to support Zepps' uh, claim or suggestion that even people in this vulnerable group, young males, are still more likely to experience myocarditis um, as a symptom of COVID as opposed to a vaccine side effect. And Joe seemed a little reluctant or hesitant to, you know, accept or process this information. But to his credit, afterwards, Joe went on Twitter and kind of did a little, you know, mea culpa and conceded the point that uh, Zepps was right. And Joe said, you know, I love Zepps. He's a great guy, uh, paraphrasing something to that effect. And uh, it was a bit of a little love fest. Uh, Zepps hopped on Twitter and also, you know, spoke of his admiration for Joe. And uh, they were both very kind of humble and gracious about the whole thing. But then, you know... There's a plot twist, and a doctor by the name of Vinay Prasad, I think it is, um, he's a uh, an MD with a uh, pretty popular online, pretty big following, and uh, I checked him out, and he seems like a real straight shooter, seems like a very nice, very intelligent guy, doesn't seem, uh, seem you know, politically biased or anything like that, he just follows the, uh, the information of, and the science. And this is what Vinay Prasad um, tweeted in response to all that. Joe Rogan is right. At some ages for men, for some doses of specific mRNA shots, the risk of vaccine-induced myocarditis exceeds the risk of myocarditis from infection. It was proven by the UK group. 
and there's a cute little downward pointing hand emoji, I imagine indicating a, a citation perhaps. Uh, and then it says, we have to be honest about this fact to have productive conversations. And so I looked it up for myself, and it appears to be the case that it's Moderna specifically that seemed to be the cause of some concern, uh, you know, regarding um, an increased risk of myocarditis in young males. And on a side note, all three of my shots were Moderna, both the, uh, the two initial vaccines and then the booster. Uh, but I guess both, fortunately... And yet, sadly, I no longer fit into that category, young males, at least not that young. Maybe I'm still relatively young, in my 40s. Don't know how the hell that happened, but here I am, hurtling towards the grave. Aren't we all? That was dark. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> composure, composure. So I guess online, cracking myself up again. I guess online there were people claiming that certain European countries were banning uh, Moderna for young people. And so I found a Reuters fact check article, and it basically says that claim is partly false. The use of Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine has been paused in Sweden, Denmark, Finland, and Iceland for, for the use in young people. And this article is dated October of last year, which actually isn't that long ago, but I don't know if there's been any significant development since then. But seeing there were a number of posts online that were linking to the same video, I guess, with the headline, Europe completely bans the Moderna vaccine for young people due to high risk of heart inflammation. The video includes a mix of opinion and the claim that Sweden and Denmark pause COVID-19 vaccines for young people due to high risk of heart inflammation, which they did. This is partly false since only some countries in Europe have paused the use of the vaccine. The Swedish health agency said on October 6, 2021, it would pause using the shot for people born in 1991 and later as data pointed to an increase of myocarditis and pericarditis among youths and young adults who had been vaccinated. Those conditions involve an inflammation of the heart or its lining. Denmark said that while it used the Pfizer-BioNTech, I think it is, vaccine as its main option for people aged 12 to 17 years, it had decided to pause giving the Moderna vaccine to people below 18, according to a precautionary principle. Sweden and Denmark said they now recommend the Comirnaty vaccine from, uh, from Pfizer-BioNTech instead. And I quickly looked it up, and apparently Comirnaty, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, is a European medicines agency, which makes sense. Kind of sounds like the name of like a vampire clan or something. But anyway, so it continues. Finland joined in a day later, and Mika Salminen, I guess, director of the Finnish Health Institute, said Finland would instead give Pfizer's vaccine to men born in 1991 and later. Finland offers shots to people aged 12 and over. Iceland is using the vaccine almost exclusively as a booster for those 60 years and older, and advising men aged 18 to 39 against receiving Moderna's vaccine. Italy's health minister, Roberto Speranza, told reporters Italy was not planning to suspend the Moderna vaccine and said European countries should work together more closely to coordinate better. 
So as usual, you know, the truth is kind of somewhere in between. Uh, yes, it still seems, I would say, to be the consensus that you are uh, much more likely to experience uh, myocarditis as a symptom of COVID itself, as opposed to a, um, a vaccine side effect. But yes, there is that kind of uh, that more vulnerable group of uh, young people, specifically young males. And uh, it specifically seems to possibly be the Moderna vaccine that could be um, more likely to bring about that side effect. Uh, and if I feel super self-conscious talking about all this stuff, you know, but uh, there it is. And now I have to kind of remind myself, well, my, why am I even talking about this again? Ah, yes, I started the show off by 15 minutes in or 16 minutes in, and I'm still dealing with corrections. But the reason why I got into all this is that um, I want to offer a kind of follow-up to my comments regarding uh, that that kind of little um, back and forth between Josh Zepps and Joe Rogan on this subject. But speaking of myocarditis, and uh, full disclosure, once again, I've been recording the show a little bit at a time over the course of several days. And yesterday, I was listening to uh, David Pakman's podcast in my car on the way to work, as I am wont to do. And uh, he was actually doing a little follow-up concerning something uh, Candace Owens had said, I think it could have been about a, a month ago. So comedian Bob Saget had uh, passed away, um, sadly, and I didn't say anything on the show when he passed. It's not that I don't care about Bob Saget. I think like a lot of people, what I found endearing about him in, in a irreverent kind of way is that he had this squeaky, this squeak, I can talk, he had this squeaky clean reputation because he played the dad on Full House. But as it turns out, he was actually one of the bluest, you know, uh, comedians around. And I always appreciated that about him. I don't know if that sounds weird. Yeah, the guy was vulgar, so I loved him. But, you know, I have a, I have kind of an irreverent sense of humor. And so I, I did. I, I like that about him. I think a lot of people did. Uh, but... Yeah, he was on tour, or he had just finished doing a show, I think, and he unexpectedly passed in his hotel room. And uh, so right-wing um, commentator, I guess, uh, uh, Candace Owens, and uh, I hate to break this little streak I have going where I've been uh, a pretty nice guy this episode. I had good things or nice things to say about, let's see, Timothy Chalamet and Eddie Tabash. But perhaps my magnanimity has run out, you know, for the episode because I don't have anything nice to say about Candace Owens. And she is definitely on a short list of people that I truly kind of loathe. Uh, I think it's the combination of anger and intellectual dishonesty that re I really find off-putting about her. And I try not to use the word grifter that often because I feel like if you're going to call someone a grifter, you should really be pretty certain that they are. But I feel pretty safe calling her a grifter. She started off as a rather left-leaning individual and then she did this sudden kind of heel turn or whatever and went really hardcore right. I mean, pretty extreme. 
And she says things that I think are rather irresponsible. And it is true, to be fair, that sometimes people do experience a kind of ideological shift in their lives, or they have a kind of change of heart. But I have the feeling with her that that's not the whole story. Maybe in part it is. It could be the case that her politics did sincerely shift right to some degree. But based on the vitriol and the incendiary way in which he couches things, I have a feeling that's also about, you know, continuing to feed the outrage to throw red meat to her base in exchange for, you know, popularity and, and uh, money or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I, I think what she said about Bob Saget was pretty irresponsible and... I think she's smart enough that she she's not saying that he died because he was vaccinated, but she goes right up to that line and heavily suggests it. But she basically takes his death and rolls it up into this conspiracy theory about um, there's a lot of young, healthy people who are seemingly, you know, dropping dead because of vaccinations or whatever, you know, and uh Bob Saget was a 65-year-old man, so when I, not trying to sound cold or callous, but when I hear that 65-year-old man suddenly dies unexpectedly in a hotel room, you know, as sad as it is, it's not necessarily a, a big surprise or seems that, you know, out of the ordinary. And I did harvest some clips for this episode, but I have to admit I'm covering this particular subject kind of last minute. So I'll just play this on my iPad and hopefully my mic does a decent job of picking it up. And it's the uh, Candace Owens clip in question. So am I a conspiracy theorist or am I Nostradamus? The answer is neither. I'm just not on Big Pharma's payroll. And I now, really remember, a lot of the people claiming that their position on vaccines is because they are not on Big Pharma's payroll are the very same people promoting the Regeneron monoclonal antibody treatment, which is dramatically more profitable than the vaccines. Just, just remember that. To peddle in their lies. And so to that end, today, I'm going to point out another truth, and it will likely be deemed a conspiracy theory until it's not. There are too many healthy individuals like Bob Saget, who we know have received their vaccinations, who are dropping dead suddenly and unexpectedly with no further explanation. And so you probably noticed David Pakman there trying to hijack my show. He doesn't have to hijack my show. I'm barely on the radar and he's huge. But I had trouble locating the original clip, so I settled on a clip of David Pakman when he had initially commented on Candace Owens's comments, if that doesn't sound too, uh, too convoluted. But as you can see, or hear, uh, she basically suggests that Bob Saget died because he had been vaccinated. And uh, we now know that, sadly, he had accidentally hit his head and went to sleep and never woke up again, which is very, um, not just sad, but scary. And that's based on the medical report and a statement released by Bob Saget's family, I believe. So here's the public statement from his family, or at least part of it. The authorities have determined that Bob passed from head trauma. They have concluded that he accidentally hit the back of his head on something, thought nothing of it, went to, and went to sleep. And so then it also says no drugs or alcohol were involved. And then here's a statement from the chief medical examiner. 
It is my opinion that the death of Robert Saget, a 65-year-old white male... Oh, we've got to bring race into everything. Anyway, um, dark thing to be joking about, uh, or time to be joking. Uh, I'm sure Bob Saget would approve. Um, a 65-year-old white male found unresponsive in a hotel room is the result of blunt head trauma. It is most probable that the decedent suffered an unwitnessed fall backwards and struck the posterior aspect of his head. And it goes on to say that the manner of death was ruled an accident. And uh, according to the autopsy report, he tested positive for COVID-19. And so if you're an anti-vaxxer, you're probably thinking, oh, he, he got vaccinated, he still got COVID-19. You know, Omicron is so contagious that breakthrough cases are becoming more and more common, but the vaccines still, you know, help protect against the need for hospitalization and protect against death. Not death from hitting your head, but death from uh, COVID. Probably didn't have to clarify that. But regular listeners will know my personal story. I suffer with chronic daily migraines. Um, most likely they're a result of two Pretty bad car accidents I was in where my head got banged around. Uh, two accidents that were close together in time and uh, took place around my early 20s. And then I hit my head again recently, so definitely not good uh, at work. I do construction. And uh, so I, I definitely, um, wow, yeah. Just the fact that you can hit your head, fall asleep, and never wake up again, that is definitely scary stuff. But before I went off on that digression about Candace Owens, I'd been talking about Joe Rogan, and it started just as me wanting to issue a kind of correction or follow-up, but he's been in the news so much lately for weeks now that I thought I might give my opinion or thoughts on some of this other stuff too. And so what was it, maybe two weeks ago now? I'm not sure. Uh, it made the headlines that Neil Young was threatening to remove his music from Spotify, kind of giving them an ultimatum, um, that if they didn't get rid of Joe Rogan, that he'd pull his music. And I think they did end up, uh, I think the way they looked at it was they saw, saw it as a request, like, hey, if you don't want our, if you don't want your music on our platform, okay, we'll remove it. Um, and I'm not sure, like, legalistically how that all works because I think he only owns like 50% of the rights to his music. I think he had sold it off to some, I think some company, which in itself was, you know, is kind of problematic, ethically speaking. And uh, so people who were kind of defending Rogan were bringing up issues with the company he had sold the uh, rights to his music to. And then, um, Joni Mitchell followed with a similar request or threat. And then I think, was it David Crosby, I think, from Crosby, Stills, and Nash? I'm actually looking it up now. Yeah, it's, I think it was all of them. Uh, let's see. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Again, joined voices. Um, yeah, this is Newsweek. Let's see. Again, joined voices in Spotify Joe Rogan debate. And so I admit it, I'm a left-leaning guy, but I have no party affiliation. I try to avoid tribalism or groupthink. And, you know, I was just denouncing Candace Owens, but that doesn't mean I'm going to be, you know, fall in line with every other left 
left-leaning content creator on every issue. And this is a good example because, in a way, I actually kind of sympathize with Joe Rogan here. These big, uh, you know, these kind of music legends were threatening to remove their music because they saw Joe Rogan as a kind of rabid anti-vaxxer or misinformation merchant or peddler or whatever. But the strange thing with Joe Rogan is that, yeah, I think, and this is my issue with his approach to COVID, and I'm someone who's been a fan of Joe Rogan for years and years. I was a fan of him on news radio. News radio is one of my all-time favorite uh, sitcoms. And I'm kind of dating myself here by, you know, telling you or revealing what my favorite sitcoms are. But I think uh, News Radio, Just Shoot Me, Seinfeld, Frasier, and for newer, relatively newer, Curb Your Enthusiasm's been around for what, like a decade now? Curb Your Enthusiasm, another one of my favorites. Those are probably my favorite uh, sitcoms of all time. So I liked Joe Rogan from News Radio And then uh, I used to listen to Howard Stern a lot back in the day, and uh, Howard Stern used to play like bits of uh, of Joe Rogan's and that kind of thing, and so I get I gained a appreciation for him as a comedian when my respect for him really deepened. And I've mentioned this on the show before. I think I was listening to an appearance he did on Adam Carolla's show way back in the day. This is when I was like just first getting into podcasts. And he talked about his interest in, you know, exploring consciousness, psychedelics, that kind of thing. And those are things, I, you know, I'm like an agnostic atheist. You can, you know, for the sake of simplicity, you can simply call me an atheist, a skeptic, whatever. But I do have a lot of interests that people would deem spiritual, like, um, you know, exploring the mysteries of consciousness, um, different aspects of different spiritual traditions like meditation, uh, use of psychedelics, that kind of thing. Um, I've always had interest in ancient history, mythology, and the powerful symbolism of mythology, Joseph Campbell, that kind of thing. So I learned that stuff about Joe Rogan. My respect for him really deepened, and I became a regular listener of his podcast. And for a long time, as long as I can remember, there wasn't much that I ever really disagreed with Joe Rogan on. Maybe once in a while he'd say something kind of disparaging or kind of uh, unfavorable or unflattering about atheists. And uh, it's funny because I like Graham Hancock. Even though I'm a skeptic, I still find his ideas really interesting. And I used to love when Joe would have people like, uh, like Graham Hancock on. But, uh, yeah, sometimes Joe Rogan and guests like Graham Hancock would kind of badmouth, you know, people like Richard Dawkins a little or kind of poo-poo atheism. And that would kind of get on my nerves. But, you know, I kind of forgave that little issue. Uh, But, yeah, it's society has become so divided, both politically and because of COVID. COVID, you know, a, a public health issue a global pandemic, something that never should have become so politicized, but we're so divided because of that and everything. But to get back to what I was saying, the interesting thing about Joe Rogan is some of the stuff he gets called out for regarding COVID, factually, he's often 
right about, or at least there's some truth to what he's saying, like um, claims about ivermectin or um, myocarditis, that kind of thing. In the case of ivermectin, I think the jury's still out whether or not it does anything for COVID, but it had been proven at least to have at least modest antiviral properties in a laboratory setting. I believe it was um, introduced to monkey kidney cell cultures in vitro, I think. Uh, the problem was there was concern over whether um, the high levels of ivermectin needed to treat COVID in a human, whether or not they'd be toxic. I believe it, it was thought they would be, um, even though in general, ivermectin is a relatively safe drug that's commonly used for uh, parasitic illnesses and conditions, etc. And I've said a number of times, you know, I have no problem with someone responsibly pre-treating with things like ivermectin if they can get their doctor or a doctor to prescribe it, etc. But I think people should also take other precautions, specifically getting vaccinated if they can, you know. Um, and we already covered myocarditis. So these things that Joe Rogan gets called out for, often he's at least partly factually right, you know. But I think the problem is there becomes this air of skepticism or doubt when day after day you're questioning the need or efficacy of vaccines, etc. In fairness to Joe, he has stated that he's not anti-vax and that he even pushed his parents to get vaccinated. And he thinks that people who are in certain vulnerable groups or who, who have pre-existing conditions, that they should get vaccinated. But it does create this atmosphere of doubt or negativity or skepticism when you're constantly calling vaccines into question. And I think that's the, or at least that's the problem I have with Joe's approach to COVID and vaccines. But I got the feeling, and in fairness, maybe it's just a hunch on my part, but I kind of, it seemed to me that these rock music legends like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, that they may not have had a fully informed take on Joe Rogan's actual opinion on all this stuff, and that they probably don't listen to his show, and they probably just heard there's this controversial guy who's an anti-vaxxer, and he's on the same platform where, you know, uh, your music's being hosted, or one of the platforms. And come to think of it, I noticed in the news today, and actually this is dated the 9th, and I'm recording this on the 12th, and I'm laughing because I originally started recording this episode on the 6th. And actually, the article I was going to read from was dated the 9th, uh, and it was from a, a place called Global News that I'm not too familiar with. This is Stereo Gum, which I'm a bit more familiar with, but also has a, a sketchy name. Uh, but actually, it's kind of a cool name, but you know what I'm saying. It doesn't sound that professional. And this is dated February 7th. Neil Young tells Spotify staff to quit. Daniel Eck, who I believe is the uh, CEO of Spotify, right? Daniel Eck is your problem, not Joe Rogan. And so my first reaction to that was maybe Neil Young regretted going after Joe Rogan. He may have been a little out of touch and didn't realize how immensely popular the guy was. And so now is trying to shift targets a bit to get some heat off of his back. 
But I don't know if that's necessarily the case, but whatever's going on, um, Neil Young definitely seems to have a problem with Spotify. And it's funny, in the last episode, I mentioned this whole Neil Young, Joe Rogan, Spotify thing very quickly in passing. And I mentioned how when I was in middle school or high school, I had a science teacher who was like a dead ringer for a young Neil Young. And um, yeah, so one of my best friends at the time uh, had an older brother who was on really good terms, really friendly with that teacher. And so in turn, my friend and I became friendly with that teacher. Um, and my friend and his older brother were also really into Neil Young. I was never super into Neil Young, but I did always love that song. What is it? Uh, cinnamon Girl or The Cinnamon Girl? I'm in love with the cinnamon girl. <laughs> always love that. I remember my first job out of high school was a shitty retail job at a place called Paperama. And the only thing I liked about it is that they played classic rock all the time over, you know, the stereo system, whatever. And sometimes that song would, would come up. I did also really like the seasonal aisle. Um, even though I'm a, an atheist or a non-believer or whatever, absolutely love the holidays, love getting into the spirit of the various holidays and times of year. And it was really cool. So they'd always have like a really awesome Halloween section and then a Christmas section. Uh, during the summer, it was all like citronella and tiki torches. I just really dug it. It's too bad it was like slave wages and the um, the management was like, they were like demons from hell. Uh, but otherwise, you know, hey. You know, it's weird. Yeah, I'm just going to keep rambling for a while. No, it's weird. I have certain dreams, like certain themed dreams that just keep recurring over the years, you know? And I worked at this place during my late teens, early 20s, and it sucks so bad that to this day, every once in a while, I'll have like a nightmare about this place that maybe I got, you know, short-changed hours or whatever, because they had like a, a kind of like a time clock. It wasn't like the old-fashioned paper and punch time card system. Um, you had like a little, it almost looked like a credit card with a magnetic strip and you swiped it when you showed up and when you left, I think something like that. And every once in a while I'll have a nightmare or a bad dream that I forgot to swipe it and lost like half my paycheck or something crazy. And then had to like go into the office and face one of the managers, uh, PTSD. I know not, <laughs> not to take away from people who actually suffer from PTSD. But on the heels of that Joe Rogan, Neil Young, Spotify controversy, it seemed like other people took the opportunity, well, Joe Rogan was really big in the headlines, to go after him about some older stuff. And so there's a pop singer who I've never even heard of before. Is her name uh, India Ari? Or is it Ari? India Ari. Okay. So I guess she tweeted or posted the social media a compilation of all these different times when Joe Rogan had said the N-word. And they were basically taken out of context. So it was just a string of, I don't know what it was, 20 or 40 times that Joe Rogan had said the N-word, uncensored, hard R, uh, most of it, I think. And wow. So then he eventually, or shortly after that, in fairness to him, released a apology video. 
And I've, I failed to mention that he had released an apology video in response to the whole um, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, uh, COVID Spotify controversy too. And I thought both of his apologies were very well done, very sincere. Uh, I thought they showed a commendable amount of emotional maturity and self-awareness. I think often when people go after us, the gut reaction can be to try to go for the throat or to try to really hit back in self-defense or out of resentment. But it kind of seemed like he did a kind of, he did kind of like a personal inventory and he was very kind of contrite and mature about it, I thought. The only caveat I'll add to that is that recently, I think Joe did a stand-up show, and I've heard him say this before, but I guess he addressed these controversies on, you know, during his show, and he said, basically, why are you taking advice about COVID or vaccines from me? I'm the guy who forced people to eat animal penises on Fear Factor. I'm a stand-up comedian. You know, why you listen to me? And I find that defense pretty intellectually dishonest because it's like trying to have your cake and eat it too. Yeah, he's a stand-up comedian, but what, what has made his show so popular is that he has these really sincere, in-depth, long-form, serious conversations with people. And he, he does so on topics like COVID and vaccines and even has people on who are kind of, they might have some, some impressive bona fides, but maybe they're considered a little fringe or controversial like Dr. Robert Malone, etc. And he'll have serious long form conversations. So you can't host conversations like that. These really serious conversations where you're offering sincere, serious opinions about vaccines and COVID and then say, what, why are you taking me serious? I'm just, you know, a clown with a rubber nose or whatever, you know? <laughs> so I've always thought that was a weak defense, but otherwise I really liked his, uh, his apologies. And me personally, and a lot of other people have said this, the N-word, you know, compilation that's easier to dismiss or forgive than some of his other what seem like more ignorant takes. Because in fairness to Joe Rogan, most, if not all, of those N-bombs he dropped were instances where he was e either quoting rap lyrics or he was quoting, say, a black comedian or saying the name of... Um, a, a, like Dick Gregory's book or something like that, you know, he wasn't using it in a hateful way. And it was usually when he was quoting someone else. And it's, it's strange how quickly things kind of evolve or change, but it wasn't that long ago when it wasn't that abnormal to hear people on the left who weren't using the term maliciously or mean-spiritedly, who were using it similar to Joe Rogan to make a point, maybe to point out an instance of racism or, you know, using it as in, a, in the context of a quote. Like someone 
did the same to make a point someone did the same thing with the young turks they made a long compilation video of the young turks using that word and i'm a big fan of tj kirk aka the amazing atheist and also a fan of the show he used to be on the drunken peasants and i can remember when tj and the drunken peasants would use that term not in a malicious or hateful way, but maybe to make a point about racism. Sometimes in fairness, knowing TJ and the drunken peasants, it could have been used in a kind of incendiary or irreverent manner or something like that. But also uh, other left, you know, left wing or left leaning content creators I watch, like Kyle Kalinske. I think I watched a video where he responded to all this and he even admitted, you know, he's used it in the past well, um, you know, quoting some racist or whatever, you know, well, reporting on incident or instance of uh, racism. But I have noticed within probably the last couple of years, there's just been a gradual kind of change where, no, even if you're quoting a racist or trying to point out racism, you don't say it. You just say the N-word. So I don't think there was ever an official policy that was set in place. That's just kind of this change that's developed, you know, developed organically. And so I'm just some white dude, but for me personally, you know, I don't, it doesn't really bother me or I I don't think uh, that Joe Rogan should be canceled or, you know, excommunicated or whatever because someone dug up, you know, a, a bunch of out of context examples of him using the n-word the other stuff um that's more problematic that he well at least one example he addresses so this is really weird like a few years back joe rogan i i hate to call it a feud or i hesitate to call it a feud because it was one-sided but joe rogan and alex jones had a little bit of a falling out and so if you're a Joe Rogan fan, you're probably uh, probably aware that he has this long-standing kind of bizarre friendship with um, radio host slash conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. And Alex Jones, um, I, I've said numerous times on the show, and I'm not the only one. There's a lot of skeptics or left-leaning people who feel the same way where... I don't believe most of what comes out of uh, Alex Jones's mouth, but I find him wildly entertaining. The guy's just so like over the top, so over, you know, pouring over with energy. It's hard not to be entertained by the guy. And I enjoy watching him in that sense. Um, But I think things did take an ugly turn when he started talking about Sandy Hook and was talking about um, the thing with, you know, that it was a false flag and that children didn't really die. That was just awful, ugly stuff. And so when that happened, I won't say Joe tried to distance himself from Alex. In a way, I think he was actually a loyal friend, as Joe often is. Um And I think he did softly denounce the Sandy Hook stuff, but Alex Jones felt like, I think felt like Rogan had thrown him under the bus or that he had, you know, been a fair weather friend. And it was kind of scary. It's like, 
it, if you're friends with Alex Jones, man, watch out if you piss him off, because he went for the jugular. I think I almost said juggler. <laughs> Don't go for the juggler, man. Back off. But anyway, um, he dug up these kind of really old clips from the early days of Joe's podcast. I think uh, Joe still had hair and or wore a uh, do-rag or something. But he dug up these two clips that were really damning, man, you know, and uh, they they had to do with race. And then he also dragged. Uh, I had no idea about Joe's private life, about his um, adopted daughter uh, or stepdaughter, adopted daughter, whatever. But he has a daughter who um, is biracial who's half black and Alex Jones was showing pictures of her and it it was kind of tauntingly saying I wonder what she thinks about Joe saying this and so one of the clips I was almost gonna play the clips I think I did back in the day but I figured people already piling on Joe enough everyone's probably already seen and heard them so I decided not to include the actual clips but one is of um, the infamous Planet of the Apes clip And so once again, this is the early days of the show. You can definitely notice a quality uh, difference and whatnot. And Joe's kind of like uh, video chatting with a number of his uh, comedian friends. And he's telling this story about how he, one of his friends and his friend's girlfriend, went to see the movie uh, Planet of the Apes. But the movie was playing in kind of a, a black area that was, you know, they were kind of afraid if they were going to be safe or whatever. And he's saying, how, and don't shoot the messenger. I should have just played the clip. But he's saying how they get out of the taxi or the car or whatever, and they're not watching Planet of the Apes. They are in the Planet of the Apes. They are in Africa. So pretty bad, right? Because he's basically saying, I'm surrounded by black people, so I'm in Planet of the Apes. And, um, yeah, as other people have rightly pointed out, all humans are apes. Homo sapiens, the wise ape, right? So, uh, technically, yeah, we're all apes. But the reason why it's considered bad for, you know, people to kind of, in a racist way, refer to black people as apes, because when people do that, they're kind of implying that hey, we're not apes. We're the more civilized and advanced people or species. The people lower down the evolutionary rung from us, which which they're not, we're all the same species, that, oh, they're the apes. So it's the othering. It's saying that other people are less than, they're more primitive, etc., etc. And then there was another clip that hasn't made the rounds as much as the Planet of the Apes one, but this has actually made it out there too. Where And this is, once again, one of the clips that Alex Jones had dredged up and played on his show while he was pissed at Joe. It's a video of Joe interviewing, I believe, a biracial athlete. If you saw him, you'd probably assume the guy was black. But... The guy's telling Joe about his his background, how he's half black, half white. And so Joe's kind of like, hmm, saying it's kind of like the perfect combination. And he says something to the effect of, um, you have the black man's body with a white man's brain. And it's kind of the, the perfect combination. And then going on to say that something like black people 
are smart too, but it's a different kind of smart or some, something like that. Maybe I'll actually play this one, man, because I know people are going to say, citation, please, or they're going to hear me saying this and think I'm the one who's racist, so... What are you yet? Yeah. Uh, dad's black, mom's white. Standard issue, pretty much. Powerful, powerful combination genetic-wise, right? You get the body of the black man, and then you get the mind of the white man all right. together in some yeah. strange combination. Starting that doesn't, by mixed. the way, mean that black people don't have brains. It's no. a different brain. Don't, right. don't get me wrong. So he doesn't say perfect combination. He says powerful combina combination. He says it's a different brain. So eh, still, no matter how you, uh, no matter how you slice it, it's still pretty bad. And so he doesn't address that clip in the apology. Um, in fairness to him, he might have forgotten about it. He it might not have been out there yet. But he does address the quote-unquote Plan of the Apes clip. So maybe I'll just, you know, in fairness, and because I also think it was a really good apology, I'll actually play his apology. Hello, friends. Um, I'm making this video to talk about the most regretful and shameful thing that I've ever had to talk about publicly. There's a video that's out that's a compilation of me saying the N-word. It's a video that's made of clips taken out of context of me of 12 years of conversations on my podcast, and it's all smushed together, and it looks fucking horrible, even to me. Now, I know that to most people, there's no context where a white person is ever allowed to say that word, never mind publicly on a podcast. And I agree with that now. I haven't said it in years, but for a long time, when I would bring that word up, like if it would come up in conversation and stay, instead of saying the N word, I would just say the word. I thought as long as it was in context, people would understand what I was doing. I was also talking about how there's not another word like it in the entire English language, because it's a word where only one group of people is allowed to use it and they can use it in so many different ways. Like if a white person says that word, it's racist and toxic, but a black person can use it and it could be a punchline, it could be a term of endearment, it could be lyrics to a rap song, it could be a positive affirmation. It's a very unusual word, but it's not my word to use. I'm well aware of that now. And there's another clip that I have to address. There's a clip from 11 years ago. I was telling a story on the podcast about how me and my friend Tommy and his girlfriend, we got really high, we were in Philadelphia, and we went to go see Planet of the Apes. And we didn't know where we were going, we just got dropped off by a cab, and we got dropped off in this all black neighborhood. And I was trying to make the story entertaining, and I said, we got out, and it was like we were in Africa. It's like we were in Planet of the Apes. I did not, nor would I ever say that black people are apes, but it sure fucking sounded like that. And I immediately afterwards said, that's a racist thing to say. I deleted that whole podcast, but obviously somebody made a clip out of it and taken out of context. It looks terrible, but it looks terrible even in context. It's a fucking idiotic thing to say. And... I was just trying to be entertaining. I certainly wasn't trying to be racist. And I certainly would never want to offend someone for entertainment with something as stupid as racism. My sincere and humble apologies. I wish there was more that I could say, but 
all of this is just me talking from the bottom of my heart. It makes me sick watching that video. So like I said earlier, I think that was a really good apology. I think he seems genuinely contrite. He seems to, like I said, possess a certain amount of self-awareness and emotional maturity. Um, and uh, even as bad as those two clips are, I'm not talking about the N-word compilation, which I think, as people are saying, was taken out of context, but the quote-unquote drinking game were the phrase of the week, perhaps, Planet of the Apes. The Planet of the Apes clip and the uh, white brain clip or whatever, as damning as those are, I, I don't think that someone deserves to be canceled or exiled for things they said over a decade ago if they seem like they've grown since then and, and they understand why it was wrong or stupid to utter something like that or to think that way. If someone's grown, why do you want to publicly punish them for something that's way in the past that they agree is wrong, you know? And in fairness, this is my take after, you know, processing these clips for literally, you know, several years now as a Joe Rogan uh, listener, like I said, uh, Alex Jones had unearthed and played these clips. What was it? Probably roughly three years ago now. Um, and when I first heard them, it did change the way I looked at Joe Rogan. And uh, it was only through time and really thinking about it. that I'm like, yeah, that is awful stuff to say, but. I think he's a decent guy, and I don't think he would say that stuff now, you know? And I've heard a lot of people, both prominent people, people in comment sections on, you know, videos on YouTube, saying that Joe Rogan never should have apologized. And that once you apologize, you know, they'll never stop, and you'll be forced to keep ceding more and more ground. And I personally think that's bullshit, you know? pardon the speech, but, you know, and I think people, prominent people like Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, Dave Rubin, who are saying, oh, you know, Rogan never should have apologized. These are just opportunists who, you know, are looking for more red meat to throw to their base or whatever, or to um, curry more favor with their base. And in fairness, I think some of the stuff is more deserving of an apology than perhaps other stuff. Uh, let's take it in the order of the apologies. So first we had the apology video he released in response to the whole Neil Young uh, COVID Spotify fiasco or controversy. And I think part of his apology video there was a lot of it was more kind of like a clarification or, you know, he's saying that, you know, if he did anything wrong, maybe it's that he could have tried more or can try more going forward to kind of strike a kind of balance where if he has kind of controversial voices on concerning COVID and vaccines, he can also then try to have more uh, kind of mainstream scientific, uh, you know, guests or doctors on or whatever. In fairness to him, he did have on uh, Sanjay Gupta and a couple of people like that. And then also his idea, which I think uh, Spotify has already implemented, of putting up a kind of little warning or disclaimer at the beginning of, you know, controversial episodes to let people know. 
hey, some of what you're going to hear in this episode might not be in keeping with the scientific uh, or medical community consensus. So you might want to research some of this stuff for yourself and don't just, you know, accept these uh, the what could be controversial claims uh, whole hog or blindly, you know. And I actually think that's a pretty reasonable and mature take. You know, I don't want him to stop having controversial conversations or to stop having controversial guests on. It would just be good to have a more balanced approach, I think. And then as far as the kind of race stuff, um, does the N-word compilation merit an apology? Well, I think he actually handled it the perfect way. He's saying, look... That was taken out of context. You know, there may have been times when he was trying to actually point out instances of racism and or he was quoting someone else, you know. And uh, so he's saying, yeah, that stuff was taken out of context. But I know it sounds horrible and kind of the nice thing to do is apologize in case you hurt someone's feelings or whatever, you know. But still, it's still good to kind of stand up for yourself a little and say, hey, in fairness, man, that, that stuff is taken out of context. I can tell I'm starting to repeat myself here, but you, you get my point. The plan that blows my mind that anyone would possibly suggest that the Planet of the Apes stuff doesn't <laughs> merit an apology. It's like, come on, man. So I get the other stuff. You can kind of argue whether or not he should have apologized. But talking about uh, you know, talking about entering a black neighborhood and, and comparing it to Plan of the Apes, you're telling me that doesn't merit an apology or that he's somehow wrong or a pussy for apologizing? Come the fuck on, man. Come on. I can tell I'm getting worked up. You know, it, it's, it's fucking gross. It's gross if you think that doesn't deserve or merit an apology. And the idea that apologizing is a show of weakness and now they're just going to keep taking more and more and he's going to have to keep seeding more and more ground. Like I said, I think that's bullshit. Man, am I swearing a lot. I started off with this episode going out of my way not to swear, you know, but here we are. And uh, the reason why I say it's bullshit is I think everyone has a line that they have to draw in the sand. And... Um, that wasn't it for Joe Rogan. You know, he could say, you know, this kind of racist crap or whatever it is, or the N-word compilation. Yeah, you know, looks bad, sounds bad. I should probably apologize. But if they ever tried to say Joe Rogan can't talk about psychedelics anymore, Joe Rogan can't talk to Graham Hancock anymore. And I, I would say, fuck him, Joe. Fuck, I'd say, give Spotify a huge middle finger. That stuff is you, man. You don't give that up. You know what I mean? Or even if they told me can't have controversial guests on anymore just because they're controversial, I'd say, no, screw that, man. Screw that. Leave, you know? But apologizing or clarifying or saying, hmm, you know, maybe I could do things better or smarter here, you know? There's nothing wrong with that. And I can't believe we're already over the one hour mark. There was one other thing I wanted to cover, and it's kind of in keeping with the whole uh, Joe Rogan theme. So Jordan Peterson finally made his long-awaited return to the Joe Rogan experience. And he said something, well, he said a number of things that some people found controversial. Uh, he made some comments on climate change and exploitive foreign labor that raised a few eyebrows. But as a non-believer, what really caught my attention was a point he tried to make concerning the Bible. 
He basically asserts that the Bible is the foundation for shared human understanding, at least in Western civilization or society. And the clip's fairly long. I was able to whittle it down to over a bit over four minutes, and I'm still debating whether or not I should just play the whole thing, and I think maybe I will. Um, but I'll add some little notes, you know, to take with you as you go in. Um, it's kind of funny. So when he's first telling Joe Rogan that, um, you know, the the Bible is basically the foundation for our shared understanding, he kind of drops this uh this pregnant pause. So there's not something wrong with the recording or whatever. No, that's that's his pregnant pause. It's kind of like like he's saying, see what I found out? And then he just lets it sit on the table for a while or whatever. Um, and then he also mentions, uh, it's pretty wild and it's true. Um, I looked it up, not that I thought he would necessarily lie about something like that. But his brother-in-law um, is this really renowned uh, microchip processor or processor engineer or architect, whatever the proper term is. And the guy's name is Jim Ke uh, Keller, Jim Keller. And he's married to Jordan Peterson's sister. I think her name is Bonnie. So that's pretty wild. And uh, he kind of talks about his brother-in-law uh, for a bit. And he compares um, this tech that his brother-in-law his brother is working on to his, you know, supposed realization about the Bible. Um, but here we go. If categories dis 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 dissolve, especially fundamental ones, the culture is dissolving because the culture is a structure of category. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. Right. So, and in fact, culture is a culture is a structure of category that we all share. So we see things the same way. Well, that's why we can talk. I mean, not exactly the same way because then we'd have nothing to talk about. But roughly speaking. We have a bedrock of agreement. Uh, that's the Bible, by the way. So I just walked through the Museum of the Bible in Washington. That was very cool. It's a very cool museum. So the structure, that's what the Bible Yeah, that's what provides. I figured out. I've been, I just figured this out this week. So it was a cool, it was a cool thing to walk through because it's, it's chronological. They have one floor, which is the history of the Bible. Mm. But it's not exactly that. It's really what it is, is the history of the book. Now, in many ways, the first book was the Bible. I mean, literally, because at one point there was only one book, like as far as our Western culture is concerned, there was one book. And for a while, literally, there was only one book. And that book was the Bible. And then before it was the Bible, it was, a, you know, it was scrolls and it was writings on papyrus. And, but it was, we were starting to aggregate written text together. And it went through all sorts of technological transformations. And then it became books that everybody could buy, the book everybody could buy, and the first one of those was the Bible, and then it became all sorts of books that everybody could buy. But all those books, in some sense, emerged out of that underlying book, and that book itself, the Bible isn't a book, it's a library. It's a collection of books. And so, what I figured out was, partly because I was talking to my brother-in-law, Jim Keller, who's the world's greatest chip designer and has now designed a chip that's as powerful as the human brain, which is optimized for artificial intelligence learning, by the way. And so I talked to him about that. He said, you heard of the internet? I said, yeah, Jim, I've heard of the internet. He said, 
This is way more revolutionary than that. So in any case, we were talking about meaning in text because we were talking about translation and the problem of understanding text. And Jim said, the meaning of words is coded in the relationship of the words to one another. And the postmodernists make that case that all meaning is derived from the relationship between words. That's, that's wrong because, well, what about rage? That's not words. And what about moving your hand? That's not words. So it's wrong, mm -hmm. but, but part of it's right because the meaning we derive from the verbal domain is encoded in the relationship between words. So, so now then you think, well, let's think about the relationship between words. Well, some words are dependent on other words. Some ideas are dependent on other ideas. The more ideas are dependent on a given idea, the more fundamental that idea is. By de that's a definition of fundamental. So now imagine you have an aggregation of texts in a civilization. You say, which are the fundamental texts? And the answer is, the texts upon which most other texts depend. And so you'd put Shakespeare way in there in English because so many texts are dependent on Shakespeare's literary revelations. And Milton would be in that category, and Dante would be in that category, at least in translation. Fundamental authors, part of the Western canon, not because of the arbitrary dictates of power, but because those texts influenced more other texts. And then you think about that as a hierarchy, okay, with the Bible at its base which is certainly the case. Now imagine that's the entire corpus of, ling of linguistic production, all things considered. Now how do you understand that? Like literally, how do you understand that? The answer is you sample it by reading and listening to stories and listening to people talk. You sample that whole domain. You build a low resolution representation of that in your, inside you. And then you listen and see through that. And so it isn't that the Bible is true. It's that the Bible is the precondition for the manifestation of truth, which makes it way more true than just true. It's a whole different kind of true. And I think this is, I think this is not only literally the case, factually, I think it can't be any other way. It's the only way we can solve the problem of perception. So I think he's right in a sense that Judeo-Christianity has had a huge influence on Western culture and civilization. Um, some of what he says at the end there, I think it, a lot of it strikes me as hyperbolic, like it's the only way to solve the problem of perception or that the Bible is actually truer than true. You know what I mean? It's the, um, it's the precondition for the manifestation of truth. And this is kind of reminiscent of his first, uh, and actually I saw that Jordan Peterson recently interviewed Sam Harris, and I'm actually really looking forward to watching that, but I've been putting it off because I had this episode on my plate that I wanted to, uh, you know, take care of first. But it reminds me of the first time uh, Jordan Peterson talked to or debated Sam Harris. He went on Sam's show and they got into this circular pissing match about the meaning of truth, you know, empirical or objective truth versus higher truths. And uh, Jordan Peterson seemed to kind of blur the line between liter what's, you know, figuratively and literally true. And uh, 
Yeah, it was kind of a a bit of a shit show, uh, pardon my language. And I think even Jordan Peterson, when looking back on that, says that he kind of regretted how he handled that interview and that he wasn't at his best during it. And yet here he is kind of engaging in the same kind of language again. He seems to frequently rail against what he sees as the arbitrary postmodernist definitions of things like truth, etc., and yet he engages in the exact kind of thing with his own kind of airy-fairy, blurring-the-line definition of truth. And I get what he's trying to say in a sense, that let's say for the sake of argument that the foundation of our civilization is the Bible, and all these kind of nested and related ideas and meanings, etc., then that's the lens through which you see the world and through which you interpret meaning, etc., and experience. And you come to truth through that particular cultural lens or whatever. So he's saying that means the Bible is truer than true. It's the precondition, you know, it's the, uh, the precondition for the manifestation of truth. But that can be said of any civilization that has certain foundational texts or stories or ideas or whatever. It doesn't mean that the quote-unquote truth is exclusive to that civilization or society. Not In fairness, not that he's saying that. But I think if you kind of read between the lines, it's easy to see, and this isn't the first time this has been on display, but... Jordan Peterson is very partial to Christianity or the the Judeo-Christian worldview. I can talk. Hey, Jordan was stumbling over his words a little too. Cut me some slack. Not that you're judging me. But anyway, yeah. So he, I mean, it's obvious that he's partial to the Judeo-Christian worldview. And I think I remember him actually, I don't think, I know. I was watching an episode of his own podcast on YouTube not that long ago. And he said something to the effect that he thought Christianity is the best we have so far regarding a kind of lens through which to see reality or as a kind of guidepost or whatever. And I remember thinking, I thought that was kind of chauvinistic, not chauvinistic as in anti-woman, but as in uh, being culturally biased. Because for instance, we have Buddhism, which predates Christianity by about 500 years, I think, or at least I think it's thought that the uh, historical Buddha, uh, Gautama, Siddhartha Gautama, lived roughly around 500 BC, right? Or somewhere between the 4th and 6th century BCE, I think. Uh, anyway, yeah, and I know Buddhism holds a lot of meaning for me, even though I'm a non-believer. Um, and some people, I don't want to get sidelined or sidetracked, but some people might argue that, and I think even, it might have been Pope John Paul II kind of accused uh, Buddhism of being an atheistic religion. Uh, but there are supernatural beliefs in Buddhism, like, you know, Pretas, Hungry Ghosts, different Buddha lands or Buddha worlds, um, all sorts of supernatural entities or deities. Um, but Buddhism, maybe in a sense you could argue it's almost uh, agnostic. The historical Buddha was actually, he wasn't the big fat guy you see in the, uh, in, in the uh, Indian, not Indian, in the Chinese restaurants. He was an Indian prince from a warrior clan, uh, Siddhartha Gautama, 
And um, so that's if you look at images of the so-called historical Buddha, and I'll say so-called because the historicity of certain foundational figures like Siddhartha, Gautama, and Jesus of Nazareth, there's some argument to be made about what the exact historicity is or isn't. Um, but anyway, his goal was to find an end to humans, to find enlightenment and to find an end to human suffering. And he acknowledged that the gods do or may exist, but that he thought that the path to enlightenment or human salvation didn't lie with the gods. The path to enlightenment or spiritual freedom lay in um, following a path that would lead to the end of human suffering via the cessation of the endless cycle of birth and death. So reincarnation, there's another supernatural um, uh, supernatural concept you find in, in Buddhism. And uh, what were the Four Noble Truths? The Four Noble Truths are, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but life is suffering, suffering is, is caused by desire, to end suffering you have to end desire, and the way to end desire is to follow the sacred eightfold path. I think that's what it is. And I think the Eightfold Path is, it's something like right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, uh, right mindfulness, etc., etc. So a, a pretty good kind of guide to living, I think. And my reason for, and yeah, so I think I got so excited I skipped over a, a point I was making. But yeah, the Buddha, you, the fat Buddha you see in Chinese restaurants, that's not the historical Buddha. The historical, I have no reason to think he wasn't an actual historical figure. And I'm agnostic on the historicity of Jesus of Nazareth. I have no real reason to doubt Jesus's um, historicity too. The idea that he may have been a real person doesn't bother me. But yeah, so the... The historical Buddha was an um, was an Indian prince, and if you see images of him, he kind of looks like a kind of uh, a slender, almost androgynous um, young figure. Um, and the the androgynous angle is probably just a matter of artistic interpretation, and not that he may have actually. Although I think he was described as looking kind of beautiful, he was. Um, probably like an outward manifestation of his inner enlightenment and uh, the fact that most people are probably going to want to believe that they're the founder of their their uh, religion or whatever was probably aesthetically pleasing or whatever. But um, anyway, but the reason why I brought all that up, yeah, because I think in Buddhism, basically anyone can become a Buddha. There isn't just one Buddha. Anyone who becomes perfectly enlightened and attains and attains nirvana, I think, can be a, a Buddha. And a bodhisattva is someone who is enlightened enough to, to attain Buddhahood, Buddhahood, but they are so moved with compassion that they decide, instead of attaining Buddhahood or nirvana, to return to earth to help save others. And that's what a bodhisattva is. But the reason why I bring all this up is because I don't think Christianity has a monopoly on... Um, on uh, the truth or that it's the ultimate or best way to live your life or view the world. But regarding Western culture, and not that he's saying this, but you know, Christianity didn't occur 
or emerge in a vacuum, you know. Um, obviously, and it's there's a kind of an interesting parallel. Christianity is the daughter religion of Judaism, just as, in a sense, Buddhism is the daughter religion or an offshoot of Hinduism. I always found that parallel uh, interesting there. But Christianity flowered in the Hellenistic world or in the Greco-Roman world and in antiquity. And a lot of early Christian thinkers and uh, early church fathers were heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. I think um, especially Aristotle, as well as kind of classic Greek literature and Roman literature, too. And, and that's another thing, too, language. He's talking about language and meaning and nest, nested meaning and relationships, etc. Well... Well, it is funny. He talks about the Bible. For a long time, there was only one book. And there is some truth to that. And I think he handled that part pretty well because he made sure the mention to add the caveat that, yeah, there were uh, obviously the Bible wasn't the first book or the first work of literature. There were other older uh, works, but, you know, papyri and scrolls, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, in the West, and he makes sure to also have the caveat in the Western world. And for a long time, the Bible of choice was the Vulgate, which means the Latin language Bible. Um, and so for a long time, it was banned. I'm, I'm, I feel kind of self-conscious using the word banned because I think it's more nuanced than that. But um, there was a prohibition about people gathering in secret or on their own outside the church to read the Bible. Um, I think it was for at least a couple of centuries, it may have been punishable by death to own or copy a, um, I think, uh, what they called a vernacular Bible, a Bible that was in the, in a regional dialect or language as opposed to Latin. I think the reason for this was, is that Latin was the official language of the Roman Catholic Church. That's the lens through which the Bible was interpreted and understood. And so the church didn't want anyone fooling around. They didn't want someone interpreting the Bible on their own in their in a language other than Latin, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, for a long time, people were largely illiterate. So if you want to know what was in the Bible, you basically went to church. But uh, Latin... Greek, you know, these languages long predate Christianity. And then there's also the pagan languages of the peoples that would become Christianized, the German, the Germanic tribes, uh, Scandinavian uh, peoples, etc., uh, peoples of Eastern Europe. So they had their pre-existing languages, and so there's probably all sorts of nested relationships and meaning, etc., that um, go along with those languages and the pre-Christian beliefs that belong to those languages, etc., so I don't think it's as simple as that the Bible is the you know, ultimate foundation for our common understanding in the Western world, you know? And another thing that occurred to me while I was first listening to that is, you know, if you put it in kind of an evolutionary context, the modern humans have been around, I think they used to say like quarter of a million years. Now I think it's like somewhere around 300,000 years, so not that much of a difference. But think about that. So 300,000 years, modern humans, you know, roughly have been around. And uh, 
the Bible has been around. If you really stretch it, I think the old, the earliest books of the Old Testament can be dated to back around 1200 BCE, uh, perhaps before Common Era. Um, so you have about maybe 3000 years ago, you know, or the Bible's roughly 3000 years old. Um, and, uh, Compare that to 300,000 years, the age of our species. And so for the lion's share of that time, we did just fine without the... Well, I don't know about just fine, but we managed to survive and procreate and uh, endure as a species for a very long, long time without the Bible. It's only for a tiny, minuscule fraction of our existence as a species that we've had this um, collection of books. And before anyone tries to call me out on it, when I say the Bible is 3,000 years old, that's including the oldest, you know, books of the Old Testament. I know that the New Testament is roughly 2,000 years old, but then you have to say you're talking about when the first books were written or when it was all compiled together. Because I think the earliest letters, I think the earliest books of the uh, New Testament are surprisingly aren't the Gospels. They're the letters of uh, Paul, right? And um, that gets us close to the eye or into the eyewitness period. Um, but of course, then you have and know the council, the first council of Nicaea is not when it was decided, which was in the uh, fourth century, which books are in and which books are out. But that did happen afterwards. I think uh, the Roman Emperor Constantine commissioned Eusebius, an early church father and scholar, to basically com compile, and was it 50? 50 copies of a finished Bible, I believe. And that was shortly after the First Council of Nicaea. But with all that being said, I think I'm finally going to call this episode a wrap, guys. Wow, it's like a <laughs> an hour and 24 minutes. Wow. Um... And this episode is probably so long because, as you could tell by all my ums and ahs and verbal stumbles, this was a completely unscripted episode. I know some of you guys prefer the long, rambling, unscripted type, so here you go. <laughs> Hopefully you enjoy it. And you guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. You can follow me on Twitter, even though I'm not on there much. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. If you'd like to support the show monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash the weekend out and support what I do here for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time.